we're looking at just longevity as a whole, the reason why is hormone replacement therapy increases the longevity by reducing cardiovascular risk, osteoporosis risk, and cancer risk. And if we look at the lifespan studies, another study, another meta-analysis also demonstrated a reduction in all-cause mortality. So that is everything, heart attack, stroke, cancer, dementia, and that was done by Zhao and colleagues in 2015. And another study in 2020 showed that hormone replacement therapy increased longevity by three years. And this was by Morton Group in 2020. So overall, hormone replacement increased lifespan, right? My argument would be if all-cause mortality goes down, chances are it also increased health span. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Hey there, are you over 40 and finding that a good night's sleep feels like a distant dream? Have no fear, I have cracked the code. I am offering a free ebook, A Woman's Guide to Kick-Ass Sleep with insights tailored just for you. So if you're ready to dive into the secrets of sound sleep after 40 and wake up refreshed, zip over to sleep.hormoneshelp.com and snag that ebook. Your dreamy sleep awaits. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So today we are gonna dig in and dig in deep on health span and specifically longevity for women and why I believe that you need to consider hormone replacement if we wanna have a long health span. And I've got lots and lots of data to back up my argument here. So again, I have to thank Peter Atia. His book that came out this last year in 2023 called Outlive, really number one, took health books back up to the top of the New York Times list, but also I think ignited a fire in people to want to live a longer health span, right? So let me define the difference between health span and lifespan is a length of time you're living. Health span is the length of time you're living healthy, right? So as somebody that is caring for an ailing parent who had a long health span, now she, this was the first time that she was actually in a hospital for more than just one night. And so the first real traumatic medical experience she had was 88 years old going on 89. So the reality is she had a very long health span, but I'm going to see her in an assisted living facility, you know, every day where there's individuals that have been there for a very long time or that are considerably younger than her and have particular health problems. So the reality is that health span is important important because we want to have a long life that is a good life, not a life that is in poor health. But that's not what the statistics are in the United States. The majority of us are, if we look at the data, are going to suffer from the big three. We're either going to have heart disease, we're either going to have diabetes and heart disease together, 
right? Which is most people. We're going to have cardiovascular disease. One in two people are going to die of cardiovascular disease. Or we're going to see dementia and cognitive decline. So one out of every four women will have dementia. We outnumber men. And then we also have cancer, right? So at the end of the day, we want to have a long health span. So we're going to talk about the latest science and remove some fears and focus on the facts. So the first off, the average woman spends somewhere between seven and eight years, if you look at the American Menopause Society statistics, on moderate to severe symptoms, it's a seven-year average, right? So the reality is we're going through these symptoms because of the loss of hormones. But those hormones are also extremely important to the risk for the big three that would lead to the poorest health span or the shortest health span. So let's first debunk and discuss the Women's Health Initiative study. So there were so many methodological problems with this study. It should have never been published. It was published before peer review. It was picked up by the media and just inflammatory things were said that were absolutely inaccurate. Statistics were used to blow information completely over and above the reality and it scared people, right? And at the end of the day, the real problem was is the study itself was poor poorly done and poorly managed. And almost every fear that they prompted in 2002 on an 18-year follow-up were completely gone. So let's get the just information out in case you have not heard all of this information. So first off, the Women's Health Initiative picked women who had never been on hormone replacement before with the average age of 62 years old, which is a good 10 years beyond the average age of menopause. And they selected women who were not healthy, honestly. They said they picked healthy women, but over three quarters of the women were either overweight or obese, previous smokers, and had multiple metabolic disorders, things like hypertension, prediabetes. They were not healthy women to start with, and they were a good 10 years past menopause. They had never been on hormones. And when we looked at the risks of the population, the initial risks, they made overblown statements saying that there was a 25% increase in breast cancer risk. That was absolutely inaccurate. The risk went from four in 1,000 to five in 1,000, which yes, statistically is a 25% increase, four to five, but it wasn't statistically significant because compared to the number of 1,000, it, it wasn't statistically significant, but that scared everyone. So so that increased breast cancer risk was found in the group that were on Prempro synthetic progestins, which are really the hormone that's got the most negative data behind it. The synthetic progestins are not ideal. The women that were on estrogen only, which was conjugated equine or Premarin, actually showed a decreased risk of breast cancer. And the reality is this subset of women, the women that were in this study, were not representative of women, especially healthy women, and of menopausal, ther menopausal therapy candidates. Because what the studies now show is ideally we want to intervene as close as we can to menopause and actually before you go through completely the transition and the further you go out from that experience the we get a law of diminishing return we don't get the same effect as if we put it in however i am going to talk about some research that indicates that it doesn't mean you can't do it it's just the greatest advantage we see from hormone replacement is to do it before you get into menopause and beyond because it's easier to preserve function than it is to regain function so Newer evidence and older evidence shows that bioidentical estradiol in particular, but 
there are places for bioidentical progesterone shows cardiac protection, enhanced cognition, and does not show increased risk for breast cancer. So if you want to look at this stuff a little bit more and you want to dig in, the book, the Avram Blooming and Carol Tarvis, PhD, wrote a book, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. That is a book that goes through all of the methodological and errors that were done in the women's health study and sort of pulls it apart for you. There's also a study that was done by Manson and their colleagues in 2013 that really just kind of pulls apart the method that was used. To be honest, if as a PhD, if I had turned in that statistical analysis and tried to present that data, I would have failed out. That's how bad that study was done. And it was because several of the researchers, a small subset of the group, got a hold of the media and they set up to massage the data to prove what they thought right? Their feelings about something. And they felt women didn't need hormones and that hormones were bad. And so they were going to massage the data to make that work. And that's essentially what happened, even though that's not what the data actually showed. So let's get into the first one, because I know this is the one that most women, almost every woman asks me about this. And they say, well, what about the breast cancer risk, right? So I just talked about that the estrogen only group in the Women's Health Initiative, women whose average age was 10 years past menopause, which also means some of those women were even more, women who were obese or overweight and had metabolic syndrome, previous smokers, lots and lots of health concerns. The women who were on estrogen alone showed a decreased risk, even below the women that had nothing at all. So there is no risk that's associated with estrogen replacement based on the Women's Health Initiative and especially on an 18-year follow-up. However, if you look at research done before 2002, let me give you some other examples. In 1997, there was a meta-analysis published in JAMA, and a meta-analysis looks at lots of different studies, and they used over 50 observational studies exploring the link between hormone replacement and breast cancer. And to go through all of those studies, so they actually went through more than that. They only retained 50 studies. But they concluded the use of hormone replacement therapy by healthy women is unlikely to cause clinically important increases in breast cancer risk in Western populations. Again, more westernized, more Americanized behaviors. And that was by Steinberg and colleagues. Another study done in 2002 examined breast cancer rate in a group of over 80,000 nurses tracked for 16 years, and they found no increased risk of breast cancer was observed in the women using estrogen-only replacement therapy, even among long-term users. So the women that used it over the entire 16-year period did not show any additional risk. Now, you got to remember at this point that estrogen only was the primary treatment all the way through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and that progesterone was only really considered something that was added. And in most cases, they were using synthetic progestins because it protected the uterine lining from proliferation of the cells because what estrogen does, if you have it, is that it increases blood supply to the uterine lining and you have to have progesterone to balance that out. Now, I would say we know a lot more today than we did in 1997. And the reality is that progesterone, the bioidentical form, has had its own studies showing that it is helpful for things like sleep and it has a positive effect, obviously, on the uterine lining and 
if somebody's got a uterus, we would absolutely use it. But the reality is 80,000 nurses for 16 years took hormone replacement and had no increased risk, even if they took it the entire time. Another study published in The Lancet in 2001, another meta-analysis, looked at worldwide epidemiological evidence prior to 2002. So they were pulling data from research studies all the way back until the 40s. And their key conclusion stated, the risk is not increased with the use of estrogen therapy for less than five years, and that all future cancers could not be accurately predicted based solely on HRT history. And this is Greiser and their colleagues in 2001. So what that means is they were tracking most of these studies were at about a five-year period or less, and that they saw no increased risk, and that taking hormones didn't necessarily show an increased risk for future cancers. Right. And then multiple reviews pointed to a lot of methodological limitations or conflicting outcomes. And then sometimes you have difficulty controlling other variables across observational data, investigating HRT and future cancer risk. So here's the challenge. When you do observational studies, right, and these are studies where you're observing a population of people over a period of time, it is very hard to control for other things that may influence the variable that you're looking at. So in this case, it would be, let's say, breast cancer and hormone replacement. Well, you could have a variable of overweight or obese, increased breast cancer risk, flat out, all on its own. Regardless of hormone replacement, if you are overweight, you have a greater risk for breast cancer. Or let's say you've been a smoker or still are a smoker, or you drink alcohol, or you are a stewardess. Yes, there's a study that shows stewardesses have greater risk for breast cancer. Again, that doesn't mean it causes it. It's just correlative. It happens to, it happened in that study to occur more frequently than not, right? At least in a statistically significant way. So the reality is, if we looked at all the study before the Women's Health Initiative, there wasn't an association with estrogen replacement therapy, especially even Premarin, which was conjugated equine estrogen that contains 13 estrogens when we only make three. And it did not substantiate definitive claims that standard doses of estrogen would cause breast cancer at all. And if we look at some of the other studies that looked at hormone replacement and lifespan, we see the opposite occurring, right? So let's look at lifespan, healthspan. Healthspan is newer language that we're using around it because again, who wants to live long but not healthy? Not many of us. So there was a Norwegian study that linked hormone replacement therapy to a 40% decreased risk in mortality, any mortality. Women on hormone replacement lived to an average of three to four years longer than women. And the reality is if we're looking at just longevity as a whole, the reason why is hormone replacement therapy increases the longevity by reducing cardiovascular risk, osteoporosis risk, and cancer risk. And if we look at the lifespan studies, Another study, another meta-analysis also demonstrated a reduction in all-cause mortality. So that is everything, heart attack, stroke, cancer, dementia, and that was done by Zhao and colleagues in 2015. And another study in 2020 showed that hormone replacement therapy increased longevity by three years. And this was by Morton Group in 2020. So overall, hormone replacement increased lifespan, right? My argument would be 
if all-cause mortality goes down, chances are it also increased health span, except it's harder to, to actually watch for those things because we have to watch for a lot of other variables. But the reality is it's helpful. So we've talked a little bit about the myth of estrogen replacement therapy and breast cancer. And if you want to go deep into this data and you want to understand it, because this book to me is an anthem to women. It needs to be read by every woman. And if you're somebody that rather listen to it, you can get it on Audible. It's a book called Estrogen Matters by Avram Blooming and Carol Tarvis. Yes, I've spoke of them before. She's a PhD. And it is a summation of all the research out there and the risks and rewards of hormone replacement. And if you we were talking to Dr. Blooming right now. He would be a proponent for the use of oral estrogen equine therapy. And biggest reason why is because we have a lot of data on oral estrogen therapy that shows it's safe and protective. So if you were to look at the data, I do believe that we have more elegant ways to treat. And actually, I'm promising right here, right now, I'm getting ready to dig in the literature and look at particularly the conjugated oral estrogens. And what does the data really say about how well it works? We just don't have as many studies. There's a few studies that are out there about the bioidentical forms that are topical or intramuscular. There are a few, but we just don't have as many. So the reality is if, if we are even looking at oral replacement, which has been around for, you know, going on 80 years now, we have high safety and efficacy cancer, high safety and efficacy. So let's look at the next big killer, cardiovascular disease. So estrogen has several protective effects on the cardiovascular system. It enhances what we call vasodilation, which is the widening of the blood vessels, right? To think of it as like a plumbing pipe. I want to have a big wide pipe to get a lot of blood supply all the way down to the tips of my fingers, the tips of my tip of my nose, the tip of my toes. And it also helps stimulate the release of nitric oxide, right? And it inhibits what they call vasoconstriction. So that's a constriction of your blood vessels, which causes hypertension. So this improves blood flow. Lots and lots of studies here. Lots and lots of studies. Estrogen also helps to lower LDL cholesterol while raising HDL. So one of the things that I noticed, and I, I see it all the time in the 20 years I've been working with patients, is that the cholesterol levels start to naturally climb as you enter into menopause. I was never, ever near 200, but I started getting 185, 190, 195, 205, 210 as I started going into menopause because estrogen helps keep LDL lower and raises good HDL through its effect on liver enzymes and lipid metabolism, lipid metabolism. So when we lose estrogen, our liver is less effective at doing its job and we get increased levels of cholesterol, increased levels of cholesterol going through the gallbladder, increased levels of cholesterol in the circulation and even in the gut because some of that goes out through the gut because of changes in liver function. And the vascular smooth muscle, right? So the blood vessels have smooth muscles that help control whether the blood vessels widen or get narrower. And estrogen inhibits cell changes when there's vascular injury, right? So we get the ability of the, the blood vessel to correct itself. So if we have a little bit of injury, it can go back and correct itself, but it keeps it from building up too much tissue, plaque buildup, and a risk for things called thrombosis formation. So estrogen is protective against that. You know what? Your hormones might be out of whack. Take my quiz to discover your personalized 
hormone imbalance and get a free report with your results. Learn what's really going on with your hormones and start feeling like yourself again. Just visit the website quiz.hormoneshelp.com to take the hormone quiz now. And so if I add estrogen replacement as I go into menopause, I have a protection, particularly in the aorta and some of the other areas where we start to see aortic stenosis, which is aortic narrowing. And so cardiovascular support with estrogen actually helps that. And then reduces inflammation, right? Estrogen excessive level can be inflammatory because it can stimulate the immune defense system. But estrogen is also anti-inflammatory because it does affect some of the cytokine production and keep some of those more inflammatory cytokines dampened. And that's why loss of estrogen, we see more atherosclerosis. And actually women match men in risk for cardiovascular event once we go through menopause solely because of loss of estrogen. So we have just as much risk for a heart attack and stroke and we show up differently. Women are more likely to have a fatal stroke or heart attack than men. And we actually have more strokes than men. And it's because we don't look the same. We don't have the same experience. We don't clutch our test and hit the ground. We feel nauseated, fatigued, and may have a little bit of chest tightness, maybe. Well, how many women feel that on a regular basis <laughs> because they've got so many other things going on? You could be having a heart attack and not even know it, right? Because we don't have that, you know, left arms numb, you know, crushing chest pain and loss of consciousness. It's a slow roll. It's a slow roll. So in essence, estrogen protects the vascular endothelium. So that's the, the tissue inside the blood vessel, improves blood flow, and prevents lipid accumulation or cholesterol placking and protects the blood vessels from structural changes and reduces inflammatory pathways, which translates to a significant improvement in cardiovascular health, right? And again, ladies, I know we like to think of this as a men's disease. One out of two of us is going to die from some cardiovascular event. That has been the statistics through history. So the reality is my mom was brought down by a heart attack that brought on a stroke. So she was having a heart attack, again, did not present with what, you know, you would think the crushing chest pain. But when her heart got back online and was able to pump again, she threw a blood clot and that's what caused the stroke. So in essence, this is one of our biggest risks, but it's something we don't consider, right? We're, we're more worried about breast cancer where we're much more likely to die. Even if somebody got breast cancer, if we catch it early enough, we have a 95% success rate. That's looking at traditional methods in which to treat, right? I'm not here to argue the benefits or detraction of conventional treatment, but the reality is heart disease and cardiovascular disease is a major killer. Now, the last one I wanna talk about is cognitive function. This is the one that I think frightens people the most, because I will tell you, I'm just gonna go ahead and be honest about my own experience. I would rather have a heart attack and wake up, do what my husband says, which is wake up dead one day because I had a heart attack, then to slowly lose my mind, right? To slowly lose contact with the people I love, to slowly lose awareness of what's happening around me, to slowly watch my body shut down part by part, right? Cognitive decline terrorizes us and the statistics are not favorable. So the reality is, depending on what you look at, it's anywhere from 10 to 40% more likely to be in women than it is in men. You know, one in four women will have dementia or Alzheimer's. And part of what we show is that estrogen can help repair neural pathways. It's anti-inflammatory in the brain. Estrogen works on the cannabinoid system in the brain, which is a anti-inflammatory and anti-pain system in the brain. It also prevents that 
plaque accumulation because a lot of our dementia is actually vascular in the brain because again you've got tiny little capillaries just like the ones that go down to the ends of your fingers you've got tiny little capillaries into your brain that as they become damaged you get less and less blood supply to that brain so when they did twin studies looking at twins so identical twins one twin took hormones the other one didn't twin studies showed that hormonal therapy markedly slowed cognitive decline long-term. And a study done by Moscone's group that just came out at the end of last year, looking at 6 million women, 6 million women, and most all of the studies included, again, oral equine estrogen, showed that if you started hormone replacement, especially the earlier that you started it in the process, you had a 34% decreased risk of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's. That is a game changer. What if somebody told you that you had a 34% increase in potential upside on an investment? Every one of us would invest, right? Those are great stats. So why wouldn't we invest a 34% increased likelihood to protect ourselves from something, right? So at the end of the day, this is huge, right? So here, let's go, let's go through some of the mechanisms, right? So Coker and Group in 2010 did one of the major studies looking at decreased risk of dementia and HRT. Cantarsi in 2018 showed that beta amyloid protein accumulation, which is one of the things that is active in Alzheimer's, is decreased in women taking estrogen replacement. We see less of that activity. Estrogen promotes synaptic plastic plasticity, right? So think of that as our ability for our brain to build neural networks and to rebuild the streets where our memory and attention and focus goes and shows long-term potentiation in the hippocampus, which facilitates improved learning and memory for, uh, formation. So the hippocampus is very important to being able to form memories, both short-term and long-term. Estradiol enhances dendritic spine density and stimulates nerve growth factors, right? So having estradiol helps the nerves actually grow and supports neural circuit strength that deteriorates in everybody with age. Right? So if I replace estrogen, I'm going to have better, stronger circuits. So think of your electrical wires having stronger strength, more messaging. Through the vascular and anti-inflammatory effects, estrogen also enhances cerebral blood flow, so blood flow to the brain, reduces the risk of lack of perfusion, so lack of blood flow that can cause injury and cognitive decline because of microvascular. So again, those little tiny blood vessels getting where all the blood that they need to where it needs to go. And then estrogen regulates the deposition of beta amyloid plaques and the neurofibrillary tangles, which are hallmarks of Alzheimer's pathology, right? So we see less of those if women are on hormone replacement. So both observational studies in women and lab models demonstrate estrogen's potent role in reducing amyloid buildup right? So again, it's super protective against Alzheimer's. And as an antioxidant, it's also neuroprotective by counteracting oxidative stress, which is rusting, which is associated to all neurogenitive disorders. So even things like Parkinson's ALS, estradiol actually boosts the production of glutathione and the binding proteins that help maintain this glutathione antioxidant redox status, right? So the body's ability to sort of clean up and quench rusting and get rid of it. So in essence, estrogen targets an array of signaling networks 
that optimize neural structures and functional integrity. So its absence in menopause allows this cascade of inflammatory response, and it's a primary driver of dementia and accelerated brain aging. So the absence of estrogen in menopause allows cascades to contribute to dementia risk and accelerated brain aging. So if we don't replace estrogen, that's what we're gonna have to do, right? So we just covered the big three, cancer, especially breast cancer, right? Because that's the biggest argument people give to not doing hormones, cognitive decline and cardiovascular disease. And those are our biggest challenges for longer lifespan and health span. Those are the big issues. So what do you do to fix all this? So we have to craft an individualized hormone replacement therapy approach right? This means everybody that's out there in the industry, because a lot of companies, especially in the telemedicine industry, have jumped on board in the prescribing land, right? And I mean, I applaud that we have a lot more attention and awareness for, for menopause. But the idea is that, you know, it's just the same for everybody. Anybody can do it. And everybody should have the same experience. I just know that we have better technology today. We have genetic testing, epigenetic testing. We have the ability to look at a person as an individual because we are individuals. We all have different experiences. We, our bodies have been through different things. So we need to assess personal risk factors, right? So we need to know when did you go through menopause? Have you gone through it? Was it a long time ago? Was it recently? Do you have other risks like additional, what we call thrombotic risks? Do you have some risk of blood clotting and other things that we might need to pay attention to, particularly if you've gone a long time without hormones? If you listen to my conversation with Dr. David Rosensweet, you'll hear him talk about, he thinks any time is a good time to consider hormone replacement, but in a small percentage of women that if they've gone a long time let's say, you know, more than 10, 15 years without hormones, we have to go a little slower and do a little cardiovascular check. Because again, it's not that estrogen will cause the problem. It's you've already got buildup and placking that has started because of the lack of estrogen. And we just want to identify it because we don't want any of those plaque pieces breaking loose and causing a problem. But once we identify it, we can look at it and we just go slow and manage the hormones pro appropriately. So I think there's a personalization that needs to happen. I think there's a precision that needs to happen because each one of us is unique and individual. Now, there's a paradigm in which we can look at the same framework and be able to replicate responses because we're using the same framework in which to help somebody make decisions. But I think personalization and precision is necessary. And we want to choose therapies that are systemic. In order to get the benefit of estradiol replacement, you have to have estradiol that goes everywhere. So using a vaginal suppository of estriol or even estradiol localizes that hormone to the vaginal tissue and you don't get the same effects on the heart, the brain, the bones. So the reality is we don't really want to just use something that might affect just vaginal dryness and painful sex. We want something that has a systemic effect. I also personally believe that we are in a position now because we can do bioidentical hormones, which means it's the exact same key if your hormone is a key compared to what your body makes. That is the ideal thing to replace with because it is exactly what our hormones are. And Compounding pharmacies, yes, there's variability when you're looking at the tens of thousands of compounding pharmacies across the United States, but they do have to follow standards. It's not like they don't have standards. But like in our case, we use 503B 
pharmacies, which are nationally certified, that go through the same pharmaceutical requirements as pharma does. Those batches get tested. Those pills get tested. Those creams get tested. And they have much higher standards that are required because they can do bulk prescriptive activities. And these are the biggest confounding pharmacies in the United States. And those companies can actually get consistent batches every time. We don't have to worry about potentials for individuals to make mistakes. So yes, there is an argument against bioidentical hormones because you may not know the quality of the hormones being made by the single compounding pharmacy in your town. But there are companies out there that have standardized bioidentical hormones. And there are some that are available even in your traditional you know, drug stores. Not as many as I would like to see and not some without the solvents and the other um, additives that I'd like to see gone. And then you have the conjugated equine estrogen. And, you know, I have to challenge myself all the time as a researcher and force myself to look at things that challenge my own opinion. So I'm going to be honest, my own opinion is that bioidentical topical hormones are a better choice than oral estrogen because of the first pass to the liver. But I'm going to be really honest that I haven't done the same kind of dive that I've done in other areas talking about going through hundreds of studies to try and understand, is there value in some of those other estrogens that we would get from an equine estrogen, right? That's made from horse mare urine. That's what they're made from. Sorry. It's just a reality. I need to do that deep dive and I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it for a podcast so we can talk about it because I do want to have that conversation with Dr. Avram Blooming. I'd like to, I'd love to have a kind of a panel and really go into it because I want to understand it because there could be a scenario where certain metabolites might be valuable. But I can't say for sure because I haven't done that deep of a dive because that is months worth of work, right? Months worth of work. But I'm going to go to the mat for you ladies and we're going to figure out all this stuff so you can be informed, right? So I think bioidentical is the way to go. I am not a fan of synthetic hormones, birth control, synthetic progestins. That's why hormones have a black box label warning because they are not identical to what our body makes and they have their own host of problems, particularly the synthetic progestins. Dosage, right? The dosage is going to be different. This is why I think we need precision and personalization because what I produced over my lifetime for an estrogen level is going to be different than somebody else. And what I need to get my body into a therapeutic range where I'm actually getting the benefits from it may be different than someone else, which is why we have variability in dosing. Even in the standardized doses that you see in the drugstores, there is a variability in dosing, a starting dose and then a top-end dose. And one woman will take a low-end dose and get to therapeutic level. Another woman has to go all the way up to the upper-end dose to get to therapeutic therapeutic. And if you don't have any way to check for that precision and personalization, then you're just throwing darts at a wall if you're never getting tested, if you're never getting looked at. And then there's the idea of cycling in and out of dosing, particularly progesterone. If we cycle it in and out, we get more of the same variation that we would see in somebody who has cyclical changes each month, like we when we were in fertility. However, we also see in progesterone especially, there are studies using it longer term for sleep relief. And so I think there's times in which we might do continuous progesterone dosing to improve insomnia and also anxiety because it helps GABA support. And then there could be reasons for cycling it in and out and mimicking what our hormones normally do under fertility. You know, so even if we looked at the American, I think it's the American Academy of Obstetrics and Gynecology, you know, they recommend doing a personalization, not just throwing the same hormones at people. 
which is why I believe that the industry has some opportunity for improvements here. And we also need to figure out what's the best application for somebody. I can tell you after 20 years of being in this industry and having providers in my office that prescribe, I do not prescribe. I'm a PhD candidate researcher. I am not an MDDO, but I have people that work in my clinic that are, and we've had patients for 20 years. Some people do really well on creams. Some people do really well on pellet therapy. Some people and many people do very well on organic oils, a delivery for hormones. So the reality is that you need a systemic approach and you need the right approach for you. And even a research study with Pinkerton and group, I think it was Pinkerton and Sten, Stenzinski in 2019, really looked at like, what's the best application here and, and why would we want to do a systemic dose? So at the end of the day, we have all of those reasons for having hormone replacement for health, longevity, and particularly health span. And the idea that approach needs to be given in a framework in which to understand how to predictively personalize with precision your experience. And that once you have an appropriate dose to get to therapeutic range, the long-term aspects are that we keep it, right? We keep it. That's at least my opinion. That's where I'm going to leave it today. So if you enjoyed this conversation of menopause mastery, I would love for you to do a couple of things for me. Number one is if you would leave me a review, I would be eternally grateful. We get more listeners because of reviews. And I know it's reviews are hard, but just when you get done, give me a five star, say a few lovely things. If you have a suggestion on a topic you'd love to hear, I do follow up on those. As a matter of fact, I had an osteoporosis conversation a couple of weeks back because I had been neglecting my osteoporosis community. And the other thing I would love is if you would subscribe so you don't miss any of these conversations. So I want to thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to Menopause Mastery. And I'll be back with you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at BettyMurray.com. 